Joan Benson adopted two infants and two 12-year-olds to complete what she hoped would be a loving, permanent family. The older two boys had many complex emotional problems, which made Joan and her husband feel it was above their pay grade. Then Joan's life crashed, and she was left devastated and alone. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Joan Benson is a wife, mother, grandmother, author, and speaker. She has written for 30 years in educational publishing and her work has been published in multiple magazines. Her debut historical fiction novel, His Gift, was published in 2020. Welcome, Joan. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Carol. When I was looking through everything that you had sent me, your bio, etc., I really love the cover of your book. And I look forward to talking to you about that today. But, but first of all, we're going to talk about your life leading up to that point. And let's start with the adoption of your children. Okay. Yes. Uh, we had always planned to have a big family. Um my husband and I had been childhood sweethearts, so we had lots of time to plan this. And then it didn't come to pass, and we didn't even know why for a few years until they ran a myriad of tests. But at one point, uh, we decided it was time to look into adoption. So we went through the processes, and uh, they were uh, long and drawn out uh, to adopt our first infant. And this was in 1969, so I need to give you a little context with that. So there were still babies available to adopt a little bit more readily than today. All right. And then as soon as we could, he was a perfect little boy, baby boy. We got him when he was uh, just barely out of the hospital and loved on by everybody in the family. And so then we went back and said, okay, we're ready for a second baby right now as soon as we could. The adoption process was long and drawn out then. And uh, by the time we were able to legally uh, have him in our legally adopted, he was 18 months old. And so it took a long time to go through the court system and all the the rigmarole with the adoption agency. By the time we adopted the second baby, 
there were some court cases coming up, and so that was fast-tracked a little bit. And so in six months, we had baby girl. And all was well with the world, and I was the happiest young mom. I just had waited and waited (laughs) to be a mom. Everything was going well, but by the time baby girl was 21 and a half months old, we had the itch again because we had always planned to have at least three, maybe four children. Okay, so we started talking to the agency and I said, well, we're sorry. The laws had changed at that point. And so we had... What? Excuse um, me, what year was that? The second time when you were trying? 1970. They told us that we had already adopted two beautiful, healthy babies. And so we weren't in line for another baby because uh, Roe versus Wade had had been passed and things were working out along those lines. And so there weren't as many people placing their, their babies for adoption. Uh, we started looking at what they called a hard-to-place list of children. And we fell in love with its description of a young boy who was 12. He was actually living in a group home in Texas. And there was a part of him that um, attracted us to his bio, to who he was, because we thought he might fit in best with our family. And he did have a, a faith background. And so there was a sense that he he realized that there was, you know, a God. And so he, we thought that, that might fit in our, in our family. So we drove to Texas and we brought Larry home. And the first 12 months were like a honeymoon. And really? we'd been not told all the details. Actually, our pediatrician said, if you know anything about the first five years of their life, and it hasn't been too extraordinarily difficult, then you'll probably be okay if they had a you know basic uh-huh. bonding opportunity with parents. Well, we weren't given that much information. Uh, we knew that um, the last years were really difficult. There were six kids in the family. The older the, the courts didn't intervene until the older two had gotten in trouble with the law. Also, given you the context of the era in 1970, both of our older boys that we adopted came from alcoholic families. Mm. And there wasn't a lot of science done at that mm-hmm, point mm-hmm. about either the personality impacts from uh, the dysfunction in the family when there's an alcoholic parent or the genetic. We kind of were going in naive and blind and we were young. Um, So we had all four children by the time we were 28 thrust into sort of a middle-aged stage with these 12-year-olds and then the little babies. The honeymoon period was going on (laughs) and Larry just adored the little kids. Well, he kind of fought with the little boy our brother my son but the baby girl and he were just best friends and spent a lot of time that was back in the era before car seats even (laughs) they would sit in the car as we drove him to this school because we were living we had built a house out in the country it was ideal we thought for these older kids we had horses we had dogs we had land places to run but the school was also out in the country so (laughs) Mm -hmm. we decided to give that a try the first year we were outside of um, a university town in the midwest and so we went to this little country school larry actually didn't have reading skills um my three-year-old was doing more with reading than larry could so we had all these deficits 
educationally to deal with. I was a reading specialist, so I could pitch in on that level. But the emotional stuff was what we weren't quite prepared for. There were so many emotional things that we couldn't deal with because they weren't on the surface. The people that the resources that we had available <laughs> were not equipped either, I might say. Because we were went, we were going to counselors, we went to our pastor, mm-hmm. we went to um, the educators, and it was like nobody knew how to equip us in a better way. Hmm. So at that particular point, like 10 months into the first adoption of the 12-year-old Larry, a friend of ours who was an attorney in town called and he said, we know that you you know, have adopted a 12-year-old, at plus your little ones. And we were, we were close friends. He said, but I just had a family member come into my office and say he wanted this nephew out of his house by Friday. Oh, my word. And it was one of those crisis points. So my husband and I, we really had this inner feeling that we had been equipped, that we had been given the gifts of land, property, a beautiful Mm -hmm. home. My husband was a pilot for airlines. We had means, okay? I was a stay-at-home mom. It looked like everything Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. in place for us to just continue to do this as our our gift to the world, if you will, our ministry, so to Mm -hmm. speak. And so we prayed about it, and we talked about it, and we did it. (laughs) <laughs> so suddenly we have two <laughs> and they were like night and day carol they were so different their complexities and their issues were how they manifested life how the old first, was the second one the second one was 12 also oh okay that's right okay now we had built this big four-bedroom home and we had one very large bedroom where larry was uh, at the first 12-year-old. And so uh, it was no problem with space. It was no problem. You know, we put another twin bed in. It was all fine and good. And, and they would be brothers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. It all sounded really idyllic, <laughs> but it was not. Okay. So the second boy that we did, we were told, he was described to us by the educators at his school that he was emotion locked. His mom, uh, hmm. his father had uh, died when he was very little. His mother um, died in a motel room as they traveled from Texas up to, the both, both the boys came from Texas, oddly, and they were driving hmm. up to this family that lived in my hometown in Lawrence, Kansas. He was left just in this motel room. Mother's gone. Wow. And so they, the, when he was placed in school in the neighborhood of, of uh, the family, he did have aunt and an aunt and uncle and, and their children living in that same area. And they said, you know, he didn't laugh, he didn't cry, he didn't show emotion at anything. So they just called it emotion lock. Once he got into our home environment, uh, he stopped being emotion locked, but he did handle things very differently. He did not push or confront. He had that silent, the, the silent kind of conflict where he would ignore whatever it was he was supposed to be doing and not confront you about it, you know. 
there's a title for that. <laughs> but anyway, um, pass, the passive aggressor versus the active one. Okay. So okay. we had one that acted out. That was the first one. And then we had the one that was the passive aggressor. And so um, as things went on into that first year when we had both boys, my husband was a pilot, as I mentioned. So he was gone uh, quite a bit. And he was flying at that point to South America. So he'd, we had the blessing of having him or the benefit of having him uh, home a lot for continuous days because he'd fly and be gone four or five days and then he'd come home and be home for a week so that was wonderful while they were not in school mm-hmm. but uh, they really needed a dad figure every day because they knew um, or they, they didn't respect my authority I guess you would say I could look at them and say okay uh, I understand that you just did this this and this and they would look at me in the eyes and say, no, we didn't do this, this, and this. Their dad would come home from a trip, and I'd have this list of this volume of stuff <laughs> that I had recorded in a journal because it went from A to Z by the time he got back. And he would sit down with them, and he had a knack because he would say, okay, so I understand you did this, this, and this. And and they would say, yeah, we did. I mean, it was like I couldn't figure out how that worked because when I did it, I, I just got lied to, and when he did it, it was all of a sudden, it was all the cards were on the table, and then we could deal with the issue. In the meantime, the little ones were quite attached, but my daughter, who was the youngest, um, became very fearful of Larry because he, um, because of the acting out. He punched at me a few times, and things became unsettling a bit scary right, right. because we were living out in the country so here I was this 28 year old mom maybe I was 29 by that time and um you know dealing with the all this emotional baggage these kids had we weren't um professional I had been a teacher so I thought I knew lots about it. I mean study right, child right. development right I studied child development but I didn't have a clue how to deal with this and so anyway we had a scared toddler. We had a, a little boy that was getting picked on because he was fun to pick on because they were boys too. And, you know, boys can be boys. Uh-huh. So um, it became very difficult. I can remember, Carol, we would get everybody all dressed up, which was a big deal, to go out to somewhere, <laughs> whether it was Sunday morning or some other instance. And people would come up and and smile and say, oh, what a beautiful family. Right. (laughs) You are so wonderful to have adopted all these children. And in the meantime, in the back of my head, I was thinking of all the trauma and conflict we'd had just getting everybody together and in the car and dressed. That happens in a normal family, too. But this was like escalated a hundred times. There was one moment when I can remember my pediatrician all those years ago saying, Joan, as long as you're okay, the little ones will be okay. There came a time when I wasn't okay. I can remember we were all there. My husband was home at that moment and we were sitting down to a dinner, you know, the baggage of the day flowing through my head. And I can remember thinking, we were in this because we wanted to create a loving family and Aww. a secure environment right. for each and every one of these children. What have we done? Wow. I left the table, went upstairs, 
<laughs> in tears. I was quite, I was broken. I just couldn't figure out how did it get to here, you know, because it wasn't a loving, peaceful family anymore. And our little ones were being infected as well. My mother-in-law, very sweet woman, took all four <laughs> and no, 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 she didn't. She took the older boys because I took the little ones with me and we visited a friend just to get me away for a few mm -hmm. days so I could clear my Some head. Some therapy. Yeah. I just needed a break because um, for me, I, I was sort of the battering ram. Uh, I think as soon as my husband would leave, walk out the door, I know the actor-outer one <laughs> uh, would start pushing buttons. I mean, he he knew. He, we, of course, it became a pattern for him. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, we did have um, um, some assistance with some of the um, actual, you know, the violent part. The part was becoming out of control with Larry. And at one point, he decided after he had some intervention from a community resource that he wanted to stay with us because it had gotten so bad we were thinking we were going to have to send him back to Texas because I couldn't cope in the, you know, the impact. So at that point he did come back. He, I think he, at that point he was, um, I guess 13, probably, you know, a year or two into our adoption of both of the boys, but he made a better effort and uh, we continued on down the road. There's more to that story. I could write books. <laughs> I have not written books about my adoption, but I have you shared You it. should. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, that's an intriguing story. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we want to hear another part of this intriguing story about what happened in your marriage after all this. You do not want to miss part two. Stay tuned. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Well, Joan, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat as I listen and relate to many parts of the story that you have already shared. And I know that that is only one aspect of devastating things that you have gone through in your life. And I appreciate you sharing your story with us today. But there is something else that you need to share. And then we're going to talk about your book and also how you coped through all of this pain. So now let's go back to when you were in your 40s and your childhood sweetheart, best friend, and only lover left your marriage for a woman 14 years younger. Yeah, that was tough. <laughs> we had just moved across the country from the Midwest to the eastern shore of Virginia. And my husband had taken a new job. And 
part of the issue that was driving him and which led to our move was because he had had to stop flying. He had a brain aneurysm and he had headaches all the time. But they said it was too difficult to do surgery. Well, there was just a high risk if they did surgery to fix the aneurysm in his brain because it was going to possibly leave him you know, in a, in a wheelchair. So he didn't opt for that. He uh, just suffered with it. Okay, so now he's grounded and looking for satisfaction in a new field. And so we moved to the east and he took a job with a respectable company and the kids were kind of excited. They never lived near the ocean before, so uh, they were all hyped up. But the younger two children at that point were 16 and 18. The older boys were no longer living at home. We would we had been in our new home for about a year, and I knew things were getting a little bit different because we had been so close. I mean, you know somebody really well when you start dating at 15. We got married out of college, and then, um, you know, we'd been married 22 years. I noticed at uh, some of the, um, like a Christmas function for this company, you know, all the women were dressed uh, appropriately, I guess you'd say, and here I came in my best of my teacher clothing. <laughs> we had, we'd kind of, were struggling at that point uh, financially, and uh, I didn't have any ball gowns, and I didn't have any dropped cleavages, and I just, you know, I looked like I, taught school and <laughs> the contrast was striking so uh, you know I was aware of these different types of women that he was hanging out with every single day at the water cooler yeah. okay so at one point um, his communication had really dropped and I kept trying you know to what's wrong what can we how can we fix what's wrong just talk to me well the talking he'd already he'd already checked out I think that happens a lot in marriages uh -huh. when people are splitting up like that one has already made a decision and so the communication closes off the other one's trying to figure out what the heck is going on uh -huh. and so uh, they're saying let's go to counseling let's do anything you know I I was not willing to give up this relationship this guy was the only person I had ever loved in my whole life all of a sudden I hear that he's leaving his company in that job and he's going to start his own with the help of a client so this it turned out that this young woman was going to be his secretary. And so I went over to the office one night and he was working to get things set up in the new office. I noticed he just pulled out. I, again, I was teaching, but school was about out and I'd gone over to see if there was anything I could do to help. And he drove away and I noticed, oh my, there's two people in that car. What's up? So then we came to the confrontation when he came home. He didn't defend himself. He didn't say anything. He just went upstairs and got a few clothes and walked out the door. Wow. Yeah, it was a while. I don't know how to um, explain how deeply that hurt. Right. And especially when I found out that she was 14 years younger and a size 2. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was not heavy, but I was, you know, a middle-aged mom at that point. I thought I was old. I was only 42 at the uh -huh, time. I look uh -huh. back now and I think, oh my goodness, I was just a kid. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I felt like I was old and I had teenagers and we had these older boys. And so, you know, I really did right, not right. see myself as, as a young person. So it was a 
big blow and the children were reeling because he'd been a role model. He'd been the head of the household, so to speak, led family devotions. We went to church as a family. All that was in place. The people that knew us thought of us as role models. We were the role model Uh, family. And then to have it just blow up like this was incomprehensible. Um, His story goes on and it becomes more of a soap opera than you can imagine. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but um, he did end up in prison for white collar crime. Uh, He ended up staging his own death off the coast of Florida. And it goes on and on. He married somebody when he was still married to wife number two. I mean, it's, it blew up in such a way that you have to say, who is this? No kidding. Yes. Well, while he was in prison, he was diagnosed with bipolar. That is a whole other story. Yes. But the fact is, it did change who he was. I've tried to speak to people about that, that that wasn't the man I was married to. I I didn't recognize this person and the choices he was making and the things that were driving him. um, That was not my husband and my childhood sweetheart. That's interesting that you said that. We are celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. And my husband, 30 years ago, had a traumatic brain injury as a result of a car accident. So again, I am relating to many of the things um, mm-hmm. you are saying, and the personality change is, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I mean, it took, he was seven years in bed, and it took a wow. lot before he, you know, became a portion of the man that he had been before, but mm-hmm. thank God he did, and oh, I do understand the pain and the headaches, and let alone everything else you were going through, so... If I am relating to your story in that way, I know that there are many others and they are seeing your strength and your tenacity and your compassion and everything that you have done regarding adopting your children and and living through this kind of trauma, etc. So in summary, before we get into your book, maybe just summarize what happened so that we can see the upside. (laughs) (laughs) The upside is um, I did have a a faith, uh, faith in a God beyond myself. And so I guess you'd say when you get to those moments when everything has been stripped out from under you, Mm -hmm. um, financially, personally, emotionally, then you look to something beyond yourself. Most people do. Um, And at that point, I, as the saying goes, it's kind of trite, but I was at the bottom of the well, mm-hmm. but the bottom was secure because when I looked up, I, I knew that the things I believed in were true because in a million different ways, I had support through the grieving, support mm. through how to restructure my life. I didn't even know who I was. I was this little girl of 15, and uh-huh. we had been a couple. So everything that I was was a part of this right. duo. Exactly. Yeah. And I honestly didn't know who I was by myself. And so I did some, I went went to some counseling, which was very helpful. I um, 
find out who I was on the Myers-Briggs personality test. And that was like, <laughs> wow, this is really me. <laughs> and and I can live with me with this help, help of my Father God. So um, I it was a very precarious time just as far as seasons of life go because our children, as I mentioned, were 16 and 18. So they were almost to the empty nesting. So I was coming home a lot of times to a dark house on a Friday night because they had plans with their friends, right? They weren't going to hang around and watch mom grieve. I mean, how, how much fun would that be? So <laughs> they were grieving in their own ways, but they were, uh, you know, leaning on their friends, their peer support. And so my life definitely changed. But as they say, uh, you grow, <laughs> you grow in those valleys of darkness, and uh, you either grow or you wilt and die. Exactly. And, yes. Yeah. And so I, I became who God intended to me to be by myself. And um, eventually, not immediately, eventually, I was introduced to a really nice, stable man. <laughs> <laughs> and I am remarried. And we our co-parenting blended family, but they're all grown. So we have shared grandchildren and four uh, younger children, all about the same age. That's what I needed to hear. And I can imagine that your story could fill a couple books. And I'm wondering <laughs> why you have not written those books. <laughs> well, actually, I was asked about writing the one about um, my ex-husband that, you know, so we had 22 years of marriage plus six years of dating and then all this drama. And at that point, and I still will say this, there were too many family members that I thought would yes, yes. feel the pain. Yeah. And his parents being one, they were like parents to me. I mean, I was 15 at the time and they just yes. had me in their home, mm -hmm. you know, so... They I were understand. second pair of parents, yeah. Um, I have not written that story. I could fictionalize it. Yes, and that's true. Tell us yeah. about the book that you did write. Okay, and it is a fictionalized version. <laughs> that was a good segue um, of real life story in my mom's life. So after my mother passed away, I started digging in her journal a little bit, her diaries back from when she was growing up. And she was a teenager in a senior in high school, the year of the Great Depression um, market crash that October. And so my mom was a very gifted pianist, and that I knew well. And uh, she was a also a strict piano teacher for me, <laughs> and so I was going to learn to play or else kind of thing. But my mom was a very gifted pianist, and she had dreamed of, of concertizing. And at, at that era, if we're talking 1929, um, that was possible because not a, all the kids graduated and went to college back then, only a few, and maybe a finishing school for a little bit. But anyway, she auditioned to play a Rachmaninoff concerto with the Detroit Symphony. Oh, my word. And she won. And so that meant that she was going to be slated for like this debut experience to give her her um, her to launch her professional career if she wanted to go play professionally, and so that was October when she won the uh, award of the honor of playing with the symphony. That was going to be in January, and she was able to attend one rehearsal with them, which was a thrill. Then the market crashed. Her dad lost his job, 
they moved to Chicago, and I won't tell the rest of the story. <laughs> but that is fair enough. <laughs> what do we do when circumstances are beyond our control? Here was this kid who had, I mean, she she really questioned her faith at that point because she had been raised to believe. And she thought, I was given this talent. I, I've worked really hard to perfect that talent. And now this, dreams that have been snatched from our grasp uh-huh. that we don't expect when we put it, all of our effort into achieving, boy, that's a universal crisis. What do we do with that? I think everybody at some point in their life has a disappointment and they have to figure out, okay, what if I, what do I do with this? What do I learn from this? How do I move on beyond this? So if you read the story, <laughs> the book, there is also an epilogue that I think you will find meaningful okay. about my brother. Oh. And so, Yes. He became a professional musician, by the way. <laughs> I became the family scribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds that way, right. All right. Well, now in summary, I mean, we could talk another hour very, very easily, I am sure. Your story is intriguing, too, as that's an understatement. So in summary, for those who are listening and for those who related in different things that you said, what would you like to say to them? There is always hope. There's always hope. And I don't mean just hope in, in yourself. I think we have to look at what's bigger than us and the creator of the universe. <laughs> and I believe that there will be a way made through the darkness. When you go through the valley, I believe that um, God will be with you. And that's one of my biggest takeaways. No matter what happened, I had that assurance that God was with me, and it made a million miles of difference. I couldn't have done it by myself. That is wonderful, and I love the way you put that. A way made through the darkness, because sometimes that's all we can see is the darkness, but God makes a way. Thank you so much for sharing that. Wonderful, and I so appreciate you sharing from your heart today on Never ever give up hope thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to quitting was never an option carol loves your comments and will respond to each one so please subscribe and review this podcast A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.